From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Ram, help. I'm so frustrated. Live 54 was at an impasse. Newly menopausal, she'd been elated because after several years of being unable to lose a pound and too often gaining weight when she tried to, she'd lost eight pounds in three weeks during my 28-day gut reset. On top of that, her brain fog and joint pain had cleared up and she felt more energetic than she had in years. But then a few weeks post-reset, the weight loss stalled and she was short of her goal five more pounds to fit into her favorite clothes that she was hoping to wear for her high school reunion. And that five pounds more would have still kept her in a healthy weight. It was a realistic goal. She joined my medical practice for some one-on-one support and asked, what can I do? Should I try intermittent fasting? Here's what I told her. Hey everyone, and welcome to Intermittent Fasting and Time-Based Eating. Is there evidence for women's health and weight loss? In this episode, I discuss the difference between and the science behind both intermittent fasting and time-based eating, what we know and don't know about the benefits and risks for women specifically, why I don't really recommend intermittent fasting as robustly as I do time-based eating, how to avoid having a negative impact on your reproductive hormones while doing time-based eating, especially if you're very physically active. My guidance for a moderate time-based eating approach that's safe and beneficial for pretty much everyone who should not practice time-based eating or at least take a conservative approach, and my personal approach to time-based eating. Plus, you asked questions in my Instagram poll, and I've got those answers for you woven into this episode too. So let's dive in. Food trends come and go as quickly as fashion trends. The 1980s brought big hair, neon-colored clothes, and the cabbage soup diet. The 90s brought grunge and low-fat foods of every stripe. But Americans gained weight and cholesterol went up, not down. Point being, not all trends are in our best interests, though I must admit to still having a fondness for torn t-shirts, skinny jeans, and combat boots. But then there are the classics, those choices that are perennially smart even if we forget about them until they make a comeback. Take high-waisted jeans. In my humble opinion, so much better on most of us than those super low riders of the early 2000s. So what about fasting? Fasting is definitely having its day in the sun as a hot trend. But back to trends versus classics. Which is fasting? And is it good for us? Fasting, a new old practice. Fasting has been an important part of cultural, spiritual, and religious traditions around the world, and has been so for thousands of years. 
our pre-electricity, pre-refrigeration, and pre-home delivery ancestors couldn't just open the fridge at 7 a.m. or 11 p.m., grab some fixings, and pop them in the microwave or on the stove and have a meal in 5, 15, or even 30 minutes. Fires had to be built to cook the food. That meant wood had to be gathered, water had to be procured, and the food had to be prepared from scratch. This took time, and leftovers weren't the norm. So breakfast wasn't a get-up-and-go kind of thing. The chores that allowed food to be eaten had to be done first. In the same vein, the sun set, and our ancestors went to bed long before late-night TV even gets ramped up in our modern world of 24-7 viewing options. In our ancestors' time, wild carnivores might have been on the prowl at just around the same time you're first tuning in to your favorite late-night show. So yeah, no late-night snacks or midnight meals for our ancestors. Too much work, and you might risk making your village bait for the wild things. No thanks, I think I'll wait until morning. Whereas modern life, at least in Western countries, allows us to eat from the moment we wake until the moment we go to bed, which is often well past the time our ancestors would have remained awake, and food is always on the ready to grab, our ancestors likely enjoyed a natural period of fasting that extended from roughly about 7 p.m. or so until mid-morning the next day. This gave their digestive system a rest for designated periods of time, a practice which is consistent with human circadian rhythms and is protective against inflammation and the chronic diseases that are now becoming ubiquitous, like diabetes, heart disease, and dementia. They also tended to be naturally leaner and more muscular than most of us are today. It's the known health benefits of this more biologically inherent way of eating that have led to two popular diet fads, if you will, that are the rage, but which actually aren't simply fads. They're classics that have been dusted off, shaken out, and given a whole new look. They're called intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. However, because I don't like using the words restricted and eating in the same sentence, not good for our mental health and food relationship, I refer to this latter practice as time-based eating to my patients, and I will in this podcast as well. Intermittent Fasting and Time-Based Eating 101. First, let's get onto the same page by clarifying the nomenclature because the terms intermittent fasting and time-based eating have been erroneously used interchangeably, and they're not the same thing. Here's what they are, and here's how they're different. Intermittent fasting technically refers to going entirely without food or severely restricting calories while water is allowed for 24 hours or more consecutively, typically at regular intervals, or for a certain set number of days per week. The two most common types of intermittent fasting intervals are the 5-2 fast, which involves eating your usual diet for five days out of the week. Then on the other two days, you're fasting. You completely abstain from eating or you severely restrict calories to no more than 500 to 800 calories a day. That 500 is typically recommended for men, 800 for women. There's also the alternate day fast, which involves fasting every other day, limiting what you eat to up to around, again, 500 to 800 calories on the fasting days or going without food altogether on those days. On the other hand, time-based eating is what most people are actually referring to when they tell their friends they're practicing intermittent fasting. 
With time-based eating, you consume your day's calories within a specific time frame. It's usually an 8 to 12 hour feeding window, as it's sometimes called. Then you completely fast during the remaining 12 to 16 hours, which is meant to at least partly occur overnight, largely while you sleep. It's not meant to be about calorie restriction whatsoever, though studies do show that it sometimes does commonly lead to consuming slightly fewer calories during the day. The most common methods for following a time-based eating plan are the 16-8 method in which you fast for 16 hours of the day and limit your eating window to the other eight hours. So for example, you're eating between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. or 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. and having nothing but water during those other hours. Or the 14-10 method, which is a little bit more liberal, in which you fast for 14 hours of the day and only eat during the other 10 hours. People can choose to do an intermittent fasting plan daily or limit intermittent fasting to just one or two days a week, or you can do intermittent fasting on an alternate day plan. Now that you know what intermittent fasting and time-based eating are and the differences between them, let's explore whether doing either is actually good for your health. Are there benefits to intermittent fasting or time-based eating? Both intermittent fasting and time-based eating are areas of robust scientific exploration as researchers seek ways to prevent and reverse the epidemics of chronic disease that are causing a devastating impact in terms of both human quality of life and costs to the healthcare system. Weight loss is a major area of study and has shown promising results. Research, mostly in animals, but some promising small studies in humans, has suggested that both intermittent fasting and time-based eating can have a host of additional benefits, from improving metabolic and cardiovascular health, to protecting memory and cognition, to extending lifespan, all of which are particularly important for women's long-term health, particularly after menopause, and about which there remains a paucity of much-needed studies. While intermittent fasting and time-based eating are often lumped together in popular parlance, the science behind them is somewhat different. Interest in intermittent fasting grew out of studies that show that when animals eat less food over their lifetimes, it extends their lifespan and has beneficial effects on aging, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancers, and neurodegenerative diseases. Research suggests that one key reason for these benefits is that after an extended period without food, about 12 hours in humans, which can include the time in which one is not eating overnight, metabolism switches from burning glucose, our usual energy source, to utilizing stored fat. When this metabolic switch is flipped, the liver starts converting fatty acids to ketones, which become the main source of energy during fasting. This is one of the metabolic effects of the ketogenic diet as well. The extended fasting of intermittent fasting also seems to trigger a potentially helpful stress response that tamps down inflammation, improves the function of our mitochondria, the parts of the cells that generate most of the chemical energy needed to power our cells' biochemical reactions, and increases stress resistance and antioxidant defenses while promoting a process called autophagy that removes and recycles damaged cell components. This cellular cleanup process may also help remove cells that are at higher risk of becoming cancerous due to malfunction. 
If you're doing a 16-8 or 14-10 time-based eating plan, you may also begin to get some of the benefits seen in these longer fasts of intermittent fasting. The metabolic switch to burning fat, which puts you into very mild ketosis, usually begins after 12 hours of fasting, and autophagy is triggered after 16 to 48 hours into fasting, depending on the study. The long fasting window of even a 1410 can bring you into that mild ketosis, while the 168 method would be needed for triggering autophagy. But time-based eating has its own unique benefits that are different and additional to intermittent fasting. The main rationale for time-based eating is rooted in our growing understanding of the circadian rhythm and the way eating affects this 24-hour daily cycle. time-based eating, and the circadian rhythm. Almost all tissues and cells in our bodies have a circadian clock that regulates the expression of many genes that have daily fluctuations in their activities. The master circadian clock is in the brain, specifically in the part of your hypothalamus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or the SCN, and light is the main signal that sets this master clock. That's why exposure to bright light at night can profoundly disrupt our sleep. But light isn't the only factor that helps set our circadian rhythm. In recent years, animal studies have suggested that when it comes to the circadian clocks throughout the rest of the body, outside of the SCN, the timing of food intake is the most powerful cue. So the idea behind TBE, or time-based eating, is that it improves our circadian rhythm by keeping our eating cues in line with the light cues that keep this master clock ticking along properly. That's important because we know that circadian rhythm disruption, when chronic and even short-term, is associated with a range of health problems, including glucose intolerance, weight gain, liver diseases, various forms of cancer, depression, sleep problems, disruption in thyroid hormone production, reduced immunity, and cardiovascular disease. This is something I explain in detail in my books, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution and Hormone Intelligence, because of their significance in women's hormonal health, stress, sleep, metabolism, and more. By limiting food intake to a reasonably short daytime window of 8 or 10 hours, we eat during the time that our metabolism and our gut function, including our gut microbiome, are optimized for digestion and assimilation. You see, your digestive system wasn't meant to be on all the time, and it was especially meant to be at rest overnight. Melatonin released before sleep inhibits insulin secretion, which is perhaps why the same meal eaten in the evening provokes a larger glucose spike compared to when it's eaten in the morning. Its effect on the gut microbiome might be part of the reason that time-based eating can be so beneficial. Just like our own cells have a circadian rhythm, there are daily fluctuations in the activity and composition of the communities of bacteria that live in our digestive tract. 
In a 2015 study, when mice were put on a high-fat diet, it dampened these cyclical fluctuations in their microbiomes. But when they ate the same diet in a time-based eating window, circadian fluctuations were partly restored. Researchers suggest that time-based eating might promote a more diverse gut microbiome because different species of bacteria bloom during the eating period while others thrive during the fasting period, potentially protecting us from the problems that have been linked to altered microbiomes and reduced microbiome diversity, including metabolic syndrome, depression, inflammation, cancer, and much more. One important difference between intermittent fasting and time-based eating is that when practicing intermittent fasting on your fast days, you're putting yourself in a state of caloric deficit. While time-based eating is not about restricting how much you eat or eliminating specific foods, it's solely all about food timing. While many people do naturally end up consuming slightly fewer calories when practicing time-based eating, you don't have to eat less in order to get the health benefits. For those who do have established metabolic syndrome or obesity, however, a longer fasting window of up to 16 hours, so a 16-8 time-based eating schedule, may be even more beneficial. It's recommended that you start, however, with a lighter time-based eating plan. For example, a 12-12 schedule where you eat for 12 hours and don't eat for 12 hours then up to a 14-10 and work your way up to a 16-8 over a matter of weeks. But it's still not necessary to do that. It just means you might get additional benefit if you already have those conditions and do the 16-8. Further, there may be some cumulative benefits to combining intermittent fasting and time-based eating for people who are already in high-risk categories around their metabolic health. So one option, for example, is doing time-based eating daily while having one or two days of intermittent fasting, so entirely skipping food or capping food at a maximum of 800 calories for women a couple of times a week. Again, not necessary, but based on the current science for people who need it because of that increased metabolic syndrome risk, that may be beneficial. In my studied opinion, and in my experience with my patients, Time-based eating gives much of the best of both worlds of time-based eating and intermittent fasting combined and intermittent fasting alone without the restrictiveness of skipping food for 24 hours once or twice a week that's required with intermittent fasting. As I'll discuss in a little bit, with time-based eating, you don't have to experience the potential risks of calorie restriction that can accompany intermittent fasting. And that can be particularly problematic for women's nutritional status, hormone production, bone health, and more. And importantly, time-based eating is much more sustainable than the longer regular fasts of intermittent fasting, making you much more likely to maintain a commitment to the time-based eating and feeling successful at it than feeling chronically restricted or deprived as often happens with intermittent fasting. Is intermittent fasting or time-based eating different for women than it is for men. While intermittent fasting and time-based eating have become popular, it should be noted that most of the evidence of benefit comes from animal studies. And as with so many studies influenced by medical bias, even in the selection for male gender in animal studies, most of those studies were done on male rodents. 
The human studies that have been done thus far have been small, usually short-term, lasting just a few months, and mostly conducted in overweight or obese individuals. We need more research to fully understand the benefits and potential risks of these two eating practices over the long term, and particularly in women. As researchers have begun to conduct intermittent fasting and time-based eating studies in both male and female rodents in recent years, they have uncovered some significant sex differences. For example, a 2021 study of young female mice and male mice who were fed a high-sugar diet and high-fat diet, which is the mouse equivalent of our standard Western diet during a nine-hour time-based eating window, they found that the males, but not the females, were protected from weight gain, had lower fat mass, and more muscle mass. Likewise, time-based eating only seemed to protect the males, not the females, from adipose inflammation and elevated cholesterol levels. On the other hand, both sexes, and again, remember, we're talking about rodents here, showed less fatty liver and better controlled blood sugar. Meanwhile, in human studies, there have certainly been some studies conducted only in women that demonstrated impressive benefits. For example, a 2017 study of more than 2,000 people with breast cancer, those who fasted for 13 hours or more had significantly reduced breast cancer recurrence risk. In a 2020 study, women over the age of 60 saw an average body fat loss of about 4.5 pounds after six weeks of following a daily 16-8 time-based eating plan. But since most human studies thus far have been small, they usually haven't been large enough to detect if there are any differences between men and women, and the few that have specifically looked for potential differences have often found them. For example, a 2005 study put several men and women on an alternate day fasting schedule. So remember, that's the intermittent fasting where you either skip food altogether every other day or you cap out at 500 calories for men, 800 calories for women. And they did this for three weeks. At the end of the study, glucose response to a meal was slightly impaired in the women, but not the men. In a 2023 study, overweight older adults ate in an eight-hour time-based eating window for six weeks. While both the men and the women lost a similar amount of weight, only the men saw a significant decrease in visceral fat mass and waist circumference. Now, this is significant for two reasons. It's the visceral fat mass and waist circumference that are actually the high risk for cardiovascular disease. So, being overweight is not necessarily a health risk for most people. Being obese is a medical condition, and that's a medical risk. But being overweight, you can be in a bigger body and be very healthy. But when you have that increased visceral fat mass, that increased weight circumference, that's the inflammatory producing fat tissue, and that puts you at risk. On the other hand, for women, particularly in our menopausal and postmenopausal years, that increased fat on our buttocks and our thighs is actually beneficial for producing small amounts of what is called estrone. That's the estrogen that we produce after menopause. And that estrone continues to have some heart and bone and brain protective effects. So losing weight on our butt and our hips may not actually be beneficial. We may find that we like how we fit into our pants better, but it may actually 
not be beneficial for our hormones in those years of our life. And if we're not losing the visceral fat, we're not getting that increased inflammatory protection. So it's kind of an interesting spin and a nuance, right? When we look at it just sort of straight on, we're like, oh, you lose weight. That's great. But it's not the right kind of weight for the protective effects. On the other hand, in a small 2020 study, researchers concluded that premenopausal women, postmenopausal women, and men who did alternate day fasting for a few months lost a similar amount of weight and saw similar improvements in metabolic measures like insulin resistance and blood pressure. The bottom line is that there appears to be a clear physiologic benefit to eating in both intermittent fasting and time-based plans. But we need much more research specifically on how these practices impact women across our life cycles and how they impact women with various medical risks and conditions. And it's also really important as you're trying one of these plans for a more extended period of time, three months, six months, 12 months, to actually consider getting some follow-up on your blood work to make sure that things are moving in the right direction for you. So if you're doing this as this one particular study showed, and at the end of the day, you're not actually getting improvement in your insulin resistance or your blood sugar measures, or it's possibly even getting worse, that's not a good result. So consider having some blood work done if you're going to do this over that extended period of time. And a sort of next level question to this is, do women face unique risks from intermittent fasting and time-based eating? There have been some concerns raised, and I've raised these myself, about whether intermittent fasting and time-based eating can have a detrimental effect on women's hormones, menstrual cycles, fertility, and experience of menopause. That's because both of these involve some degree of caloric restriction. Though again, time-based eating isn't meant to, and it doesn't have to, and I'm going to revisit that in just a little while. But this caloric restriction can have a more significant impact on women. We're more biologically sensitive to that. And the most obvious consequence of this is something called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which may occur on its own due to calorie restriction or be part of something called the athletic triad, which is associated with calorie restriction over-exercise, or high levels of stress. Hypothalamic amenorrhea leads to anovulation, meaning you're not ovulating, and can thereby impact fertility and also progesterone production, which can then lead to a host of hormonal symptoms that can cause discomforts throughout the menstrual cycle due to that lowered progesterone. And it can affect us in perimenopause as well, causing sleep problems and other symptoms. Some animal studies have certainly been concerning. In a 2013 study of young rats, an alternate day fasting regimen disrupted the estrus cycle in female rats, as well as altering serum concentrations of estradiol, testosterone, and luteinizing hormone. The researchers concluded that intermittent fasting, quote, negatively influences reproduction in young animals due to its adverse effects on complete hypothalamic hypophysial gonadal axis, meaning it's affecting the brain-ovary connection. On the other hand, the mice in that study were quite young, comparable to prepubescence in human terms. So it's not clear that the impact on fully grown female mice would be detrimental. When it comes to human studies, we don't have much to go on. 
A 2022 review noted that very few studies have examined how intermittent fasting impacts sex hormones. The handful of studies they could find, which were small, short-term, and only in premenopausal women with obesity, suggested that a 5-2 intermittent fasting plan and time-based eating plans may decrease androgens while increasing sex hormone binding globulin levels. The authors suggested that intermittent fasting and time-based eating could therefore be beneficial for women with elevated androgen levels from polycystic ovarian syndrome, which physiologically could improve ovulation and reduce the common and troubling symptoms of excess androgens that women with this condition experience, like cystic acne, hirsutism, and female pattern hair loss. Combined with a high-protein diet and increased high-intensity exercise, this approach could potentially provide an effective and non-pharmacologic approach to PCOS for many women. On the other hand, decreasing androgens and increasing sex hormone binding globulin may actually cause symptoms of reduced testosterone in women, which could lead to depression, fatigue, lower drive, and lower motivation. So again, limited studies, more to be determined, some positives, and some potential downfalls. A small 2022 study was the first to look at how time-based eating affects hormones in postmenopausal women. It concluded that with an eating window of four to six hours, and keep in mind that's quite a lot more restrictive than I'm talking about for the most part, women's estrogens, progesterone, and androgens, as well as sex hormone binding globulin, did not change. But in this study, in both premenopausal women and postmenopausal women, DHE was reduced. The significance of that is unclear, but the study basically shows that even with a restrictive four to six hour eating window, the other sex hormones did not get altered. One common question I get is whether intermittent fasting or time-based eating are safe and appropriate for women with Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, or whether it might negatively impact cortisol levels due to a possible impact on the adrenal stress response. Concerns have also been raised as to whether intermittent fasting might have a detrimental effect on hormonal circadian rhythms. A recent review of the literature reported that in rodent experiments, complete fasting for 24 hours did lower serum T3. And likewise, in humans, T3 levels started to decline quickly with fasting. T3 is what free T3 comes from, and free T3 is the active form of thyroid hormone. One study that's quite dated reported that serum T3 decreased up to 55% after 24 hours of fasting, while TSH levels remained unchanged. A 2019 study on intermittent fasting using the alternate day fasting method found lowered levels of T3 without impaired thyroid gland function. So the T3 perhaps wasn't getting converted in the liver or some other process was keeping that T3 from being formed, even though the thyroid gland was working perfectly fine. The clinical significance of these changes is still unclear and much more research is needed. Also, a 2020 study compared 
the intermittent fasting pattern of alternate day fasting to daily calorie restriction in adults with subclinical hypothyroidism. They found that both intermittent fasting in the alternate day fasting method and calorie restriction, like basically putting people on a diet, was equally effective in producing clinically significant weight loss of about 7 to 8% over six months in adults with subclinical hypothyroidism with no significant impact on T4 or TSH levels. They concluded that alternate day fasting does not appear to negatively affect thyroid hormone levels in subclinical hypothyroid individuals, but they did not study the impact on people with healthy thyroid function or in actually diagnosed hypothyroid individuals. However, Due to the impact of calorie restriction on thyroid physiology, I tend to recommend against intermittent fasting and extreme time-based eating, so less than an eight-hour eating window, for women with subclinical and clinical hypothyroidism, pregnant women because maintaining normal T3 levels is essential for fetal growth and brain development, and in women trying to conceive because the impact on normal T3 levels is also important in this setting. When it comes to stress and cortisol levels, as I mentioned earlier, intermittent fasting may surprisingly counterintuitively have a positive impact on stress, resilience, and cortisol levels. But we do know that for women in particular, highly restrictive diets, particularly when low blood sugar occurs chronically or often, can trigger the stress response in a negative way and has been associated with the same problems associated with circadian rhythm disruption that I mentioned earlier. Overall, however, there's a lack of adequate research exploring the impact of time-based eating on either cortisol or melatonin levels, and much more research is also needed on whether the strategy of skewing the eating window to earlier in the day or later in the day makes a difference. So with time-based eating, most classically people will skip their breakfast, start eating at what we might consider brunch, so at like 10 in the morning, and then carry their 8 to 10 hour window into the early evening and then stop eating. So that becomes the eating window. But a 2021 review explored the impact of time-based eating during the Islamic month-long holy fast of Ramadan and found a blunting in circadian cortisol rhythm and a reduction in melatonin, which according to the researchers, could theoretically lead to reduced sleep duration and quality. So then the question is, should we actually be eating breakfast and ending eating earlier? And I'm going to talk about that more a little bit later in this episode. The bottom line here for me, though, is that while it can be helpful at reducing inflammation, improving brain fog and aches and pains, and other symptoms, I generally recommend avoiding intermittent fasting and treading carefully with time-based eating, sticking to a 14-10 window, which is highly unlikely to have a negative impact on thyroid or stress levels or cortisol in most women if you struggle with those. And similarly, a 16-8 plan is also likely to be well-tolerated, but it's important to err on the side of caution if you do struggle with fatigue, thyroid or adrenal issues, and above all, pay attention to how you feel on the plan. You can also modify it to doing just a couple of days a week of time-based eating if you want to achieve some of the potential benefits without skipping meals on a daily basis. If it's not working for you, don't keep doing it. 
eating healthfully of foods that are as close to their natural form as possible, not too late at night and not too much, is still phenomenally healthy without doing any intermittent fasting or any time-based eating. In contrast to intermittent fasting methods, where you consume minimal or no calories on your fasting days, in time-based eating, remember, you aren't intentionally eating less than you normally would in a 24-hour period. You're just compressing your eating into a shorter window. However, especially when doing time-based eating with the shortest eating windows, many people actually automatically end up reducing their calorie intake slightly, completely unintentionally. You're just eating in a shorter period of time. So you may end up foregoing a snack, for example, that you would have otherwise eaten if you ate over a longer period of time or that evening snack that you might have snuck in before, but now you're not getting. According to one recent review, in trials on time-based eating, participants have tended to reduce overall calories by as much as 7 to 22%. If someone is very physically active, you're an athlete or you're just an intense workout person and you're practicing time-based eating, you might therefore inadvertently not consume enough calories to support the energy you're burning during exercise. And this can lead to a syndrome called relative energy deficiency in sports or REDS. And the athletic triad I mentioned with hypothalamic amenorrhea earlier is a subset of REDS. Over time, REDS can lead to amenorrhea, the loss of a menstrual cycle, anovulation, all the things I mentioned with athletic triad, and like athletic triad, can lead to loss of bone density, increased risk of fractures, and disruption of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, HPG axis, which is the brain-ovary connection, and the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the brain-adrenal axis. Symptoms can include fatigue, depression, frequent illness, and declining athletic performance, as well as interference with ovulation, menstrual cycle function, and the production of our sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. While REDS can affect men and women, it's especially common in women. And according to a recent review, 20% of exercising women have menstrual irregularities, as do over half of women endurance runners. Dr. Sachin Panda, a prominent researcher on circadian biology and time-based eating, has developed an app called My Circadian Clock, where users can track their meals and activity and share the data with researchers. I have no financial relationship with this. I'm just sharing this information with you. Dr. Panda has noticed that they've gotten reports from women who developed REDS symptoms after starting time-based eating while also exercising frequently. And if it's happening with time-based eating, it's definitely going to be happening with intermittent fasting, which is by definition restrictive. That's not to say it's not possible to do time-based eating while being an athlete. It may just require being more careful to ensure that you're getting enough food to support your activity level. While there haven't been many time-based eating or intermittent fasting trials in physically active people, a 2019 study found that women who did resistance training while following an eight-hour time-based eating window saw similar gains in muscle and strength compared to women who ate within a 13-hour period. 
So that's good news. Importantly, the two groups consumed the same amount of energy and protein. So that's the critical piece, not letting your time-based eating interfere with the amount of food you're getting if you're a high-intensity athlete. Are intermittent fasting and time-based eating healthy long-term? Besides REDS, there may be other unknown side effects from intermittent fasting or time-based eating when used long-term that we just don't know about yet. For example, a 1991 epidemiologic study found that a long overnight fasting period of greater than 14 hours was associated with nearly double the risk of gallstones in women compared to those who fasted just eight hours per day. According to Dr. Walter Longo, another prominent fasting researcher, until further studies give us a better understanding of the risks and benefits, intermittent fasting and more extreme versions of time-based eating should be limited to short-term and not used by the general population. In contrast, time-based eating periods of 12 hours, according to Dr. Ponda, appear to be associated with benefits without known negative effects. And he agrees that for those who aren't trying to lose weight, are eating a healthy diet, and are physically active, sticking to a 12-hour-per-day fast may reduce the risks and offer plenty of benefits. And this is good news. It's sustainable and still beneficial. In rodent studies, most of the benefits of time-based eating are seen with a fast of only 12 hours, although the shorter eating windows, like the 10 hours, have the greatest benefits. While there haven't been very many human studies of 12-hour time-based eating, one Swiss study that was a randomized trial showed that people who reduced their eating window to a 12-hour window while not changing their diet at all lost as much weight as those who switched to a healthier diet with fewer processed foods. On the other hand, a 2021 study found that those who followed the 1410 diet while incorporating nutritious foods and consistent exercise lost more weight and showed a more significant improvement in blood glucose levels than those who did the 12-12 diet. So for example, if you're otherwise healthy and you're doing great and you want to do the 12-12, phenomenal. But if you already have insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, then you might want to slowly bump up to the 1410 and see how you feel. But one thing that the My Circadian Clock app found was that more than half of adults eat over a 15-hour or longer window every day. So simply compressing it down to 12 hours would be really significant for many people. My personal approach, emphasizing time-based eating. Personally, as I've gotten older, I'm 56 now, I've found that time-based eating with an eating window of either 10 or 12 hours and a fast of 12 to 14 hours is a more natural daily eating pattern for me. And in my clinical experience, working with women patients across all ages, a 12-12 or 14-10 time-based eating window is highly achievable, sustainable, not psychologically challenging for most women, and it also helps with a lot of symptoms. It reduces sleep disturbances, reflux at night, and all of the things that I've talked about, which are often more problematic even in perimenopause and early menopause when inflammation, weight gain, and sleep problems often start to creep up. How you time the hours of your eating window is up to you. I highly recommend no matter what, having your last food of the day 
no longer than 7 or 7.30, if at all possible. And it's important not to go to sleep within three hours of eating your last meal of the day. So give that three to four hour window after eating before laying down. And it's ideal to wait about an hour after waking up before eating your first meal of the day. There's some evidence that an eating window earlier in the day is somewhat more beneficial than later in the day. So having that eating window start within that hour of getting up and then ending even earlier. But that may be more difficult to maintain socially because most dinners out with friends aren't over by 5 or 6 p.m. So as much as possible, stick to the same window every day, just like having a consistent sleep schedule is helpful for maintaining circadian rhythms, so is having consistent meal times. So focus less on whether you're starting early and ending early or starting at, say, 10 o'clock in the morning to have your eating window, meaning you're eating between 10 and then, say, eight or 10 hours after that, and focus on being really consistent. Studies are also really contradictory about whether it's better to eat earlier and end earlier or eat later and end a little bit later. There is some evidence that skipping breakfast may actually increase all-cause mortality in women. So you may benefit by starting your eating window on the earlier side, for example, eight or nine in the morning, and then completing your food intake eight or 10 hours later, depending on the ratio of eating times and fasting times that you've selected. But it may take some experimentation to figure out the window that best fits your body, your schedule, and your lifestyle. For example, time-based eating definitely doesn't work for me on an especially demanding workday. If I have to give a really strenuous presentation in the middle of the day, I know that I need to eat earlier that morning. I also know to eat before any major work or physically strenuous events. That just works better for me. So I might start my time-based eating plan three or four days a week at 10 o'clock in the morning and finish eating by seven at night. But on other days, I might not do time-based eating at all, or I may start a little bit earlier that day and end a little bit earlier that day. So I'm flexible with it, and I pay attention to what my body wants and what my body is saying on each day. One thing that's really important, though, is how you break your fast. Psychologically, particularly if you're not starting your morning meal or your first meal of the day until 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning, you may be tempted to reward yourself with an all-you-can-eat meal. But this is especially counterproductive. If you eat a giant feast after fasting, even for 12 or 14 hours, your primitive brain will tell your body to store that extra energy in the form of fat for later use. Instead, I recommend breaking your fast with a simple, filling, healthful meal that contains protein, greens, a healthy form of a carb, and a good quality fat, and not too much. Don't eat twice as much or eat an increased amount. Eat what you would eat at a normal, healthy meal. And I recommend practicing something called harahachibu, which is eating until you have a sensation of being satisfied, but not full. So you're eating to sort of 80% of what your fullness capacity might be. Then if you get hungry before your next meal, choose snacks that are high in healthy fat or protein, like nuts or bone broth, a hard boiled egg, or something like some hummus and veggies. Or if you need a little something more, have an eight ounce protein shake. Or if you want a sweet treat, have a half a cup of organic fresh berries or two squares of dark chocolate, or my favorite, a combination of dark chocolate and berries. 
So here's a moderate approach to time-based eating if you want to explore this and try it that's likely to be risk-free for most people. Keep your eating window conservatively to a 12-hour eating window with a 12-hour fast or a 10-hour eating window with a 14-hour fast. Consider time-based eating on only one or two days of the week instead of doing it daily. As much as possible, be consistent with your eating window to help set your circadian rhythm. So keep your eating window relatively the same each day or relatively to the same days each week. Don't eat within three to four hours of going to bed and pay attention to how you feel, making sure that you stay hydrated and adjust your energy or food intake accordingly as needed for your energy expenditure for that day. Is there anyone who shouldn't practice time-based eating or intermittent fasting? The answer is yes. If you have a history of struggling with an eating disorder, I don't recommend intermittent fasting at all because I find that the extreme restriction is an emotional trigger for many women who have previously been overly fixated on food intake. The one that does work is time-based eating, but you still have to be thoughtful and honest with yourself and making sure that you're not using the health benefits of time-based eating as a way to sort of trick yourself unwittingly into restrictive eating, that you're kind of playing out the eating disorder under the health halo of time-based eating. But if you're fully recovered and you're not actively experiencing any eating disordered symptoms, a light time-based eating practice of 12-12 or even 14-10 can be done safely and effectively. And as long as you, again, stay honest with your motivations and pay attention to how you're feeling on the plan. Another group that should definitely not be doing intermittent fasting or time-based eating are pregnant people. If you're breastfeeding and your baby is six months or beyond and you feel like you don't need to eat those snacks at 10, 11 o'clock at night, which I know all too well from having breastfed, or you know, you're still breastfeeding a toddler, then you might consider a 12-12 time-based eating. But if you're in those early first six months of breastfeeding, if your baby is dependent on your breast milk as their primary food, then you should not be doing intermittent fasting or time-based eating. And again, breastfeeding or pregnant intermittent fasting is totally out. We're only talking about the potential for time-based eating if you're breastfeeding an older baby who's not dependent on breast milk for their sole food or a toddler. If you're underweight, Intermittent fasting is definitely not an option. Time-based eating might be acceptable because it doesn't require a reduced food energy intake. You're just eating in that compressed window. However, as I've mentioned, it often does unintentionally lead to reduced calorie intake. If weight gain is your goal, this might not be your best option. However, if you are wanting to get some of the benefits of time-based eating, the reduced inflammation, improved metabolic parameters, et cetera, then you could work with a nutritionist to guide your energy intake to make sure that you're getting enough food intake, enough calorie intake while you're doing a time-based eating plan. But again, intermittent fasting, not an option if you're underweight. And finally, if you need to take medications with food and at certain times of the day, Intermittent fasting is probably not for you ever, and time-based eating may not be an option depending on how you do it. But it's really important to speak with your medical provider about whether time-based eating would allow you to take the medications with food at the times of day that you need.
Now, one big question I get is, what about coffee? Can you have coffee during the fasting window? And the jury is really out on whether having that morning cup of coffee or caffeinated tea or anything else caffeinated counts as eating and breaks the fast. On one hand, some studies showing benefits of time-based eating have allowed black coffee or tea, black tea, during the fasting window. For example, that study that showed a greater than 13-hour overnight fast being associated with reduced risk of breast cancer recurrence, they allowed black coffee during the fasting period. But the consensus from most researchers, and sorry to say this if you were hoping for a different answer, is that it probably does reset some of your body clocks away from the circadian rhythm if you do drink black coffee or other caffeinated products. According to Sachin Panda, a cup of coffee in the morning is similar to an hour of bright light exposure which does reset your circadian rhythm. It's more unclear, however, to what extent drinking coffee or tea kickstarts metabolism, thereby taking you out of the fasting state and stopping autophagy to some degree or another. What's definitely clear is that you cannot add cream, half and half, oat milk, almond milk, or sweeteners to your coffee or your tea. If you're going to have it, it has to be black. So bringing it all home. Many of my patients have adopted time-based eating practices that integrate easily into their busy lives, that leave them feeling satisfied throughout the day and improve their energy, digestion, metabolism, sleep, relieve their chronic aches and pains, and improve their sense of well-being and more. In fact, a lot of my patients start time-based eating on a temporary basis, but they continue it indefinitely, sometimes daily or sometimes just a few times a week because they feel so good and because it's really quite easy to do. While no one way of eating is for everyone, time-based eating may be a return to natural eating rhythms in an otherwise man-made world that can feel busy, chaotic, and overstimulating and quite far from the circadian rhythms in which our nervous and digestive systems were inherently programmed to thrive in. If you have no contraindications to it, are curious and would like to give time-based eating a try, pay attention to how you feel, giving yourself a couple of weeks to adjust to the new rhythms. That's the best way to know if it's for you or not. If you're eager to try, but preparing food is what feels foreign or overwhelming to you, I've got you with dozens of recipes, all for free, over on my website at avivaram.com, and hundreds of recipes and weeks worth of meal plans in my books, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution and Hormone Intelligence, along with more ideas for supporting and resetting your circadian rhythm, reducing inflammation, healing your gut, balancing blood sugar, and supporting your hormonal health at any age. I wish you great health, however you decide to approach your good, healthy eating. And I can't wait to hear from you over on my Instagram posts. You can comment about any of these podcasts under any of my Instagram posts. They don't have to be just Instagram posts about what the podcast is about that day. So hang out with me on Instagram over at Dr. Aviva Ram. And I can't wait to talk with you next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life 
who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.